this week on the Docs to Dads podcast. We are back with another Journal Club episode. We are unpacking a recent article from JAMA Pediatrics about how a common medication used in adults and kids may cause an increased risk of serious infections. A word of caution this week on the Docs to Dads podcast. Hello and welcome to the Docs to Dads podcast, a health and wellness resource for any dad looking to actively engage with their health, the health of their children, and building a stronger, healthier community around their family. Each week, Dr. Scott, a board-certified pediatrician, will explore topics relevant to child health and how dads can be an active participant in their growth, development, and other issues that affect children and the whole family. Hello and welcome back to the Docs to Dads podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Scott Grant, and we are back with another great Journal Club episode. As soon as I saw this article, I was like, I have got to talk about this article on the podcast, uh, partially because I'll acknowledge it confirms some of my uh, underlying uh, preconceived notions about these medications and my uh, caution for using them in the first place. Um, It's just always nice to have the data actually play out what you think is happening. So often in medicine, we're making decisions based on our own experience, but that's not really the best way to do it. And so it's really nice when you get some data that either says, uh, no, that thing that you were worried about, it's not really that as big of a deal as you thought it is. You just kind of have bad luck and you've seen a couple of these cases, but it, it actually isn't a thing. Or in some cases you get an article like this that says, oh, that thing that you're a little worried about, uh, maybe it's something you should talk about with with parents and sort of do a little bit more shared decision-making before you jump right into to giving that medication. So I'm excited to talk about this article uh, a little bit with you today. Uh, for those of you who are new to the podcast, uh, Journal Club is a series of episodes that I've done uh, and will continue to do where I go through the research that's being done in the world of pediatrics and child health and discuss how I take that research and actually turn it into practical advice for raising my own kids and for sharing uh, with the families that I get to serve in clinic every day uh, professionally. Um, and so it's really fun to, to kind of talk through this and really try to demystify some of the research that's out there in various places to uh, help you uh, make better decisions uh, as you're parenting your own kids. I want to try to give you the information that you need to answer the questions that you're discussing at your dinner table. But first, I just want to say I hope you all had a nice Halloween. Uh, I hope you got to spend some quality time with your kids and had a good time. I know my kids had a great time trick-or-treating this year. We had a Ghostbuster, a raccoon, and a dragon, and we had a really fun time uh, going around our new neighborhood and kind of getting to know some of the other families in the neighborhood and just do some trick-or-treating. So it's kind of a a fun time for Halloween to pop up. Uh, This week has been extra fun uh, for me, of course, because my beloved Texas Rangers are moving closer and closer to maybe a first world series title. We've been in this spot before and it hasn't happened. So I'm crossing my fingers, cautiously optimistic. If everything goes well, by the time you're listening to this, uh, maybe they'll have, have won it all and, and we'll be uh, in a really happy place. So uh, go Rangers. Hopefully uh, we can get another win and, and wrap this up uh, like we were not able to do 12 years ago. Of course, the first time my team makes it to the world series in a dozen years, they have to play the team from the city that I just moved to. So it's been an interesting time to try to make friends at work and in the neighborhood with this sort of uh, Rangers-Diamondbacks rivalry during the World Series. But 
uh, it's been all in good fun. I think a couple of teams that nobody thought either of those teams would be in the World Series this year. So it's been just kind of a fun ride for everybody. And, and <laughs> I have actually made some friends uh, from it. So anyway, go Rangers. This week's article for the Journal Club uh, comes from JAMA Pediatrics and a recent paper that was titled Proton Pump Inhibitor Use and Risk of Serious Infections in Young Children by Marion LaSalle et al. Uh, this article was written by uh, what looks like some French academics who work primarily for like the French National Health uh, Agency, uh, and that's where most of the data that they used came from to do this study um, to try to figure out uh, what effect these medications might be having on the kids in the French population who are being exposed to them. So the first question you're probably asking yourself is, what are proton pump inhibitors? Uh, or PPIs uh, is the other sort of vernacular that we use uh, for these medications. Um, and these are medications that basically turn down the acid in your stomach by shutting off the proton pump uh, that creates that acidic acid. So you have these uh, cells along the lining of your stomach that pump out protein, uh, protons, excuse me, not proteins, to create the acidic environment that we'd need to break down the food we eat and all the other things, all the other sort of functions that our stomach does. So how do you know if you're taking one of these medications? Typically, these medications in the fray, in the in the letters P-R-A-Z-O-L, Prazole. So these are things like Omeprazole, Lansoprazole. Um, and the common trade names that are available over the counter are names like Prevacid, Prilosec, uh, and Nexium. Like these are medications that you see ads for on TV all the time. Um, and certainly these medications have a role to play in medical care. For now, at least they're a mainstay of how we treat both adults and kids who have severe disease in their uh, esophagus and stomach, like uh, kids who have ulcers in their stomachs, for example, either due to burns or trauma or exposure to stress, or uh, you know there might be other reasons why there's too much acid in the stomach, um, or maybe they're taking uh, medications that irritate the stomach, and those can cause ulcers in the stomach as well. And the use of the ability to sort of turn down the acid in the stomach for a little bit of time to be able to heal, let the lining of the stomach and esophagus heal is useful and is an important part of like keeping folks, you know, not in a, a severe amount of pain as they recover from those types of injuries. Um, and so for now, you know, it does still seem like there's a place for these medications. But over the last 10 years or so, there's been a growing field of research tying the long-term consistent use of these medications to increase risk of adult conditions ranging from all kinds of things like even bone fractures, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, and Alzheimer's disease, which is sort of how I first fell down this uh, rabbit hole. I have a family history of Alzheimer's dementia, uh, and so I've spent a lot of time thinking about and trying to learn about Alzheimer's prevention. And so that's kind of where I first found something that tied... Uh, some something bad to the long-term use of these types of medications. And then since then, it seems like there has been more and more. Uh, but this is one of the first studies I've seen that's sort of taken a comprehensive look at how the use of these medications in kids might have some unwanted effects on, on their health, right? I'm, I am seeing more and more that these medications are being used by healthcare providers as well as by parents because these are available over the counter and assumed to be marginally, you know, relatively safe, um, that they're being used for kids who just have basic heartburn, like they get a little bit of 
indigestion or upset stomach after they eat spicy foods or, you know, too much tomato sauce, which can be a big thing that triggers uh, reflux uh, or heartburn. And then even more crazy to me is you're starting to see this more and more, even in babies who are just spitting up, but they're still growing fine. They're not having any other problems. They're just spitting up, but we're trying to use these medications to um, help with spit up. I might do a whole episode about spit up and what to do about it because I think this is a thing that we don't always talk about very well and we don't provide very good education about and there's things that that work and things that don't work and this goes pretty clearly in the category of things that don't work. We'll probably talk more about that but all of that to say I personally am seeing an expanded use of these types of medications uh, in the pediatric community and that's certainly played out by the data that these authors share as well. So France has this robust national healthcare system that allows academics like the authors of this paper to have access to an anonymous database where they can collect pretty detailed information about the kids that are covered by the health system, what uh, types of exposures and medications they may have been uh, exposed to during that time, and then compare that to clinical outcomes of interest, which is useful to like a nerdy epidemiologist type like me. And so it's nice to be able to do this. It would be much, much more difficult to do this type of study uh, in the American healthcare system where there's 600 different insurance providers and a million (laughs) doctors that they might be going to and trying to like piece everything together could get much more challenging. So the fact that everything's kind of in one place is nice for doing these types of studies. And one of the nice things about this study is that it included 1.2 million children uh, in France and the population basically self-selected to about a 50-50 split on those who had been exposed to these medications at some point in the past and those who had never been exposed to them uh, in the past. It's a little bit skewed toward those who hadn't had the medication, um, which is probably good for the integrity of the study. Uh, but it's not like the authors were able to control like who got them and who didn't. It wasn't like a, a blinded study where they chose who got the medication and who didn't. They just sort of had to take the data that was available. But in that kind of scenario, this is about as good as you can hope for, where you have this huge population and they've sort of self-selected into fairly equal groups. And so then they put these kids into categories based on how long their exposure was, like how long were they taking the medication, and then whether they were still taking it in an ongoing way or whether they had had it in the past, but now we're off of it. And so they basically categorized kids for the exposure by between The first group was, I've never been exposed to PPIs. Uh, The second group was, I took a PPI, but it was for less than six months. Uh, The third group was, took PPIs between seven and 12 months. And then the last group was folks who took PPIs for 12 months or longer, whether they had then stopped them and were in the past use category or whether they were still using them in an ongoing way. And then they collected data about how many of those kids had developed a, quote, serious infection. And there's a long list in the article uh, that outlines, like, what are the diseases that they chose to categorize as serious infections? Generally, these infections were just ones that required some kind of medical intervention. Some of them are sort of routine, like, medical interventions in terms of, like, otitis media requiring, you know, ear infections requiring antibiotics is included in this list. So basically, anything that would make you need to seek medical care for the infection was sort of called a serious infection for the purposes of this article. You could sort of haggle about that a little bit, and maybe there would have been a more useful way or a better way to sort of stratify, like, 
did kids need to be in the hospital because it was a serious infection versus just needing to go to the doctor and get some antibiotics? Because I think there's a big difference between those two things in terms of healthcare costs, in terms of outcomes for kids and, and all of those kinds of things. So maybe lumping all of these things together into uh, a group called serious infections might be overly generous to some of those types of infections, but they were infections that prevented these families from just continuing their day-to-day life. They had to stop what they're doing, take a day off of work, go to the doctor, get some antibiotics, whatever the case may be. So it was disruptive, at least in some way, uh, but just to kind of identify like how exactly they categorized these infections. The other thing they did that I thought was good was that they included a 30-day lag period between the start, the initial exposure to a PPI, and any infections that they might have had. So all that's say, like, if the patient started a PPI yesterday and then they show up at my office today with an ear infection, the likelihood that that's related to the PPI is relatively low because it hasn't even really had, an, had a chance to have any kind of big effect on the body yet in that way. Um, and so they did include this lag period so that there's at least a little bit more claim for this PPI may have played a more significant role in the development of this infection than if it was like two days later. The other thing that was interesting about the infections that they studied was that these spanned across the whole body. So they're talking about ear infections, lung infections, stomach intestine infections, skin infections, muscle infections, and even urinary tract infections. Uh, so they really wanted to see, was it just an increased risk of, expo- of exposure for certain types of infections? Is it all kinds of infections? Is it none of them? And that was, uh, I think, a really nice way to capture that data and, and see whether, you know, which types of infections and that might also could have given us a clue in certain contexts as to what the mechanism is. Like if there's truly an effect of using this medication on getting a severe infection, if it only affects certain parts of the body, then that might give you some clue as to how that works. Like how does the medication actually alter our immune system in such a way that it increases our risk for infection, for example, if that were true. The other thing that I found particularly interesting that we'll talk about is uh, they included some socioeconomic information about the families uh, in terms of who uh, was at risk for being exposed to these PPIs in the first place. Um, And I think that speaks uh, to an interesting part of this conversation as well. What did they find? Uh, They found that the use of these medications, proton pump inhibitors, by kids was associated with an increased risk for these infections that they called serious infections across basically all types of, you know, all parts of the body. So these risks were the highest in infections of the GI tract. So the esophagus and stomach, as you might expect, because that's where sort of the medication primarily works, um, but also uh, had significant increased risks for infections in the ear, nose, and throat, like ear infections, and pharyngitis, uh, so infections in the back of the throat, uh, as well as lower respiratory tract infections like pneumonias. Those were sort of the biggest risks, but as you look across the data, especially in those kids who had used the medication for a long time or were continuing to use it, the risk even for things like muscle infections, urine infections, skin infections was much higher than those kids who had never been exposed uh, to the medication at all. One of the One of the bits that that makes me a little bit anxious is that based on their data, this was also true for folks who didn't use the medication for very long. So those who used it for less than six months and for 
those who had only used it in the past, but were not still using it. It's hard to know what exactly to do with that information. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, but there definitely seems to be what we call a dose-dependent relationship. So the more you use it, the longer you use it, the higher your risk. So the risk in that less than six months category is certainly lower than if you used it for more than 12 months. But in a lot of these cases, the risk is higher than if they'd never been exposed to it at all. Uh, that's what we call a dose-dependent relationship, which is another sort of clue towards causality. Again, it's really hard to prove causality, and you're never going to be able to do that in a study like this to say, like, the fact that you took this medication is the reason you got this infection, or at least was a major contributor to why you got this infection. But there's a lot of pieces here that kind of add up to this is probably one piece of the puzzle that might have increased risk for developing these types of infections. The interesting thing about the demographic information that they shared, the socioeconomic information, is that as they lay it out, kids who are from higher socioeconomic strata were actually overrepresented in the population of kids who were exposed to these medications in the first place. That brings up for me a lot of questions about like why would that be the case, and there's issues about access to care and differential treatment of uh, folks across socioeconomic strata. Um, but one of the challenges is, yes, it's true that if there's a differential between access and, and how we treat folks across socioeconomic backgrounds, that those folks in higher socioeconomic strata might have more access to things that are good for them, but it also maybe increases their risk of exposure to things that are not good. And so we need to be particularly careful both about making sure that we're providing equitable care across the socioeconomic strata to the to the extent that we have influence over that, uh, but also extra careful to make sure that we're not giving things to families because we're feeling pressured to do it, even if we, we're not sure if it's the right thing to do uh, or, or whatever the case may be. Because maybe those are the families that are, have the resources to take more days off work and come in and ask questions again, talk to us. And it's harder to have a conversation and do some education than to just write a script and send them on their way. And so one of the things that I really pride myself on as I'm talking to families is like really wanting to take the time to say like, no, 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 I've read the studies on this. This is not something we want to do unless we really, really need to. What should we do instead? Um, again, this is a much longer uh, conversation, especially, especially for babies. Uh, and so I might even dedicate a whole episode to that at some point. But the first is to say there are other medications that don't work on the same part of the stomach, the proton pump, that also do have some effect on turning down uh, the acid in the stomach and can be effective at treating reflux, heartburn, indigestion, whatever, whatever you prefer to call it, in a way that does not seem to be associated with these same, these same adverse health outcomes, right? These are, can be either other types of acid-reducing medications that you might use, um, specifically things like famotidine can be a good option, and antacids, uh, so basic your, your Tums and, and other types of things that can help uh, just sort of settle down the stomach directly and directly buffer the acid that's already there without affecting the ongoing production of more acid in the stomach. But I think the most important thing is to say whatever you're going to use, even if it's a PPI, but preferably not, 
the stomach seems to be acidic for a reason. And certainly that contributes to food digestion, but we're learning more and more about the relationship between the gut and behavior and relationships between the gut and the immune system. And so there's probably some other role that the stomach seems to play that is a reason why it's acidic. And it seems to me that the more aggressively we turn down the acid in the stomach, the higher we have risk of problems coming from that. In so much as we can keep our stomachs acidic the way that they're supposed to be and still be able to live a normal life and not it doesn't interfere with us by causing too much pain or discomfort, uh, we should try to do that. And we should really only modulate the acid in the stomach in situations where we really, really need to. And so I usually will try to talk to families about we really only want to use these medications. Uh, and again, for me, mostly I'm using that that mid-level medication, not the PPIs. But even those, I try to only use for a week, maybe two weeks. While we do some homework, we try to figure out like what are the things that we're eating or what are the things that we're doing that seem to be causing us problems related to our stomach acid and make some changes in the diet only use these medications for short little windows when we really need them and try to come off of them when we feel like we don't need them anymore so that we can let the stomach be acidic and let that help maintain our immune system and, and all the other functions that the stomach seems to play. This is a, a rapidly evolving field of research. In five or 10 years, we may know a lot more about this than we do now, but these are some, some of the early studies that are showing like there's some really important things that the stomach is doing, whether it's related to digestion and the ability to actually break down the nutrients and nutrition that we need and absorb it in a way that then supports our immune health and supports, you know, other aspects of our, our well-being, or whether it's some separate hormone function or, or something like that. We're still learning a lot about that. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we're going to use these medications, we should try to use them uh, for as little as possible, especially in kids. Um, I always think about in kids, you know, if I start that clock at age 12 and then they're using it for the rest of their life, how much more does that increase their risk than if they don't start these medications until they're 30 or 35, right? Like that's 20 years of additional risk that I've added on to them. If I'm not really careful about counseling families about, we don't want to use this medication for a long time. We want to use it just for a little while until we can figure out uh, what's causing this discomfort and then see if we can do some, eliminate some things uh, from the diet or only use it sort of in targeted ways to control our symptoms, but otherwise try to let our stomach function like it's supposed to. Trying to stay away from these types of uh, medications as much as possible, unless it's really indicated. And usually in those situations, you're talking about you're seeing a specialist, maybe you've gotten a scope, you've actually seen a camera picture that you have, you know, an ulcer in your stomach or in your esophagus. And in those situations, certainly turning down that acid really aggressively to give that me mucosa of your stomach time to heal uh, can be really big. Uh, but outside of that, usually there are other medications that we can use that don't carry these types of risks and can still help you sort of heal and, and get back to work and get back to your activities and whatever else it is that you want to do in the meantime. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode today. Uh, it's a little bit different than some of the other journal club episodes I've done that have been a little bit more focused on parenting. But again, I thought this was really important information, especially since these medications are available over the counter, um, which I think implies to parents that a, a level of safety uh, that 
maybe is true and maybe isn't. Uh, and so I just wanted to get this information out there for you. So as you're trying to make a decision of like, which medication do I get? Should I go for the stronger one? Right. Which is probably the conversation that you would have with yourself or with your partner. Right. Like in this situation, this is where you want to maybe go for the middle of the road one and see if that'll give you the effect that you need uh, before you start moving on to the quote unquote stronger one. If there's a topic out there in child health or parenting that you want to hear more about, I would love to do a journal club episode about something that you are excited about. If you see an article on social media that seems to be drawing from uh, a research paper and you want to hear more about that, please send that my way. And I'd be happy to take a look at it. And, and I'd love to do a journal club episode about that. Uh, I'll keep sharing the ones that I find that are interesting and, uh, we will uh, learn a lot along the way. Uh, please share those with me on social media. You can find me at Pod on Instagram or Facebook. You can find me at Dr. Scott Grant on LinkedIn, or you can just shoot me an email at docstedadspod at gmail.com. I want to say thanks as always to Phil Rabon for editing this show. And I want to encourage you to tune in next week where I will be doing a book club episode about a book that I finished recently called The Intentional Father. Had a really great time discussing this with some of my dad friends, uh, and I'm really excited to share it with you as well. Until then, remember that what you do as a dad matters. Keep building healthier dads, happier kids, and stronger communities. Thanks so much. The information included in this podcast and other Docs to Dads platforms is intended for your education and entertainment only. It is not intended as medical advice, and should not replace a relationship with a primary care pediatrician or other provider who will give the most appropriate recommendations for your individual situation.